Our reading will be from Matthew 5, verse 4 to 5, which can be found in the middle of your booklets. Blessed are those who mourn, for they are comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Thank you very much for, for reading, and good to see you all again this morning, and great to continue to have this weekend with you. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount, that section of teaching from Jesus, and we're in these um, sayings of blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, that are known as the Beatitudes. Beatitude, old word meaning blessed, blessing. And I was saying last night, these Beatitudes are addressed to people who are already followers of Jesus. Um, It says there in verse 1, his disciples came to him. And it's to them that he's saying these things. Uh, And so he's saying to disciples, this is the life you're already living. By definition, you're living this life if you're a follower of mine. And this is the life you must now stay in. Don't depart from it. Don't become somebody else. Grow in this. Grow in who you already are. And that's how I was talking about it last night. That's not quite the full picture, though. The full picture, if you read the whole Sermon on the Mount, is that disciples, followers of Jesus, are not the only people who are listening into this sermon. It sounds like Disciples are the only ones listening in if you just read the beginning. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Just kind of try and picture this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And if you just read that, you might legitimately think, oh, there's this crowd who are following Jesus around, and he's kind of annoyed by that. He wants some kind of secret, private quality time with his followers, so he, just, he kind of runs up a hillside, and the disciples follow him. And when he, okay, that's a relief. We've left the mob behind. Now I can teach you lot. That's how it kind of sounds at the beginning. But that's not how it is. I think Matthew, in the way he's written this, is he kind of holds something back that... Kind of will jump out at you as a bit of a surprise at the end. You get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 7, and we're not told what the disciples made of this teaching. We're told what the crowd made of it. Suddenly the crowd are there going, this is amazing teaching. And it turns out the crowd had been kind of hanging around all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, just kind of eavesdropping. Earwigging, kind of listening in. Clearly Jesus knows that. So the scene is something like um, Jesus is teaching his followers, his disciples, and he sees the crowd who are hanging around, just kind of, you know, they're thinking, we're not one of, the f- we're not one of these hardcore followers, but we're kind of interested. So we're just, we're just kind of listening in. So like, like Jesus is teaching his disciples, but he knows they're there. So he's eyeballing his followers, and he's got half an eye on those who are listening in who aren't yet his followers, they're not ready to say they are, but they're interested enough to want to hear what he says to his followers. Um, And I want to acknowledge that um, there may well be people here on this weekend, and and you're kind of basically in the shoes of the crowd. 
um, as it were, eavesdropping, listening in to what it is that Jesus says to his followers. With a sense of, if I were to become one of his followers, what would the deal be? What would he say to me? It may be that you're someone who is, who is happy to be around Christians at Christ Church, but you know that you haven't yet done the thing that Christians at Christ Church call repenting, following Jesus, making Jesus your Lord. Well, I think these Beatitudes are helpful for you because, as we've seen, even in the way they're written in the Bible, Jesus kind of has half an eye out for you as well. That is, you listen in to what he tells his followers about who they already are, what blessings are already theirs. As you're listening into that, you're picking up on what someone has to do, or maybe better, who someone has to be on the inside to be someone who could do the thing that's called becoming a Christian. And that is massively important, I guess we all know this, because there are many misconceptions around about what it is to be or to become a Christian. Where I live, in North London, I regularly meet people who I think probably know that they aren't Christians. Maybe they have a sense that culturally they are in some way but they're not the same as the people they meet at church. But they sometimes come to church. And a lady who my wife Erica and I were talking to recently after a service uh, in our church, this lady was saying, she said, "Um, I'm coming to church because it is a difficult world out there for children. She's got a young son. And she said, "I I want some help in guiding my son onto the right path in life to know right from wrong. And I think the church will help me with that. Well, now, if she and her son keep coming, and if they take on board what they hear in church, they are sure going to get some help with that. There's no doubt about that. There's a sense in which she's come to the right place. But here's the thing, of course. They could drink in all the knowing right from wrong stuff that they'll get in church... And her son could grow up to be a hard-working, law-abiding, drug-free, do-anything-for-anyone kind of person. And yet still he would not be one single step nearer being what a Christian actually is. Actually, in all of that, he might have moved even further away from being what a Christian actually is. If he has a sense of how wonderful it is that I'm a drug-free, law-abiding, do-anything-for-anyone kind of person, and some people in this world are not. That would have taken him further away from being a Christian. So why am I saying all of this? I'm saying it because being here listening in might help someone over the course of these four talks to get a kind of growing sense of, okay, maybe I was a little hazy before, but that's what it is to be, to become a Christian. As opposed to all the other things someone might think it is. Yeah, so maybe two audiences in the room, as it were, just as there were two audiences for this sermon when Jesus first preached it, eyeballing disciples, others welcome to listen in to get a sense of what is it to be a Christian. Okay, so, so let's now come to these two Beatitudes, blessed, blessed sayings that we're focusing on in this first talk, verses 4 and 5. I'll take them in turn. Verse 4. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Here's what that is not about. It is not about the mourning or grieving over a bereavement or some kind of loss. It's not primarily about that. Of course, Jesus can draw particularly close to those who are bereaved and have lost a loved one. And many of you will have experienced that in your life. The sweetness of Jesus drawing near in the loss of a loved one. That is absolutely true of him. It's just that's not what he's mainly got in view here. What he's talking about here is mourning over our sin. Our grief over how often we grieve the Lord by disobeying him. Our grief over how the world we are part of grieves its creator with its sin. If you want to see this kind of mourning over sin in action, uh, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament is a really good example. In chapter 6 of his book, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has this vision of God in his power and holiness and beauty and splendor. And this is Isaiah's response. He says, Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He sees God's beauty and purity And that forces him, by contrast, to look at himself and the uncleanness in him and in the world around him. And all he can say is, whoa, I am ruined. That's the mourning that Jesus has got in view here in this beatitude. Actually, in Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of it later in his book, in chapter 61. Um, If you're someone who sort of likes following a sermon um, and the different Bible references with the Bible in front of you, now's a good moment to turn back to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to turn there myself. Some people prefer just to listen, I know, and that's fine. Isaiah chapter 61. I'm just going to read the beginning of Isaiah 61, and you'll see... It must have been that Jesus really had these verses ringing in his mind as he speaks the Beatitudes. There's lots of links. Listen to this. Isaiah 61. I mean, in the end, these are words about Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There we are, poor, poor in spirit. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. And here it is, here's our beatitude. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And and those are words that really help us understand what Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 5. Because the scene here in Isaiah, the scene is God's people, Israel, who are under God's judgment for their sin. They've been invaded by a foreign army who've conquered them and carried them off far from home into exile. And God has said to them, this is no accident. I have brought this on you because you have rejected me. So all who mourn back there 
in Isaiah 61. That's not everyone who's lost a loved one. That is everyone in Israel who is mourning over Israel's sins that have called down God's judgment on them. I just want to spend a a moment longer on seeing what this mourning over sin is and and what it's not. I think it's worth spending a moment on this because right through the centuries, people pastorally have often pointed out someone can think they're mourning over sin when really they're not. And I'm going to take a serious example here because this is a serious point and I think it needs a serious example. Think of two Christian people, and both have committed adultery, and both have wrecked their marriages as a result. And the first one sits on her own in her new flat, and she is overwhelmed with grief. Of course, overwhelmed with grief at the life that she's lost. That grief is real. But what most overwhelms her as a Christian is what she's done before God. The betrayal of marriage vows that she'd made the damage to a marriage union that God had made. And she prays, of course she prays, Lord, I'm sorry for all I've lost. I'm sorry for what I've done to other people. But here's here's the moment. Most of all, Lord, she prays, I am sorry that I have sinned against you. That I regret. That I repent of. That is what Jesus calls mourning over sin. in our beatitude. And now just thinking of that imaginary, in many cases, of course, real person. Just hear these words from Jesus. It it is the person whose sin leads them to pray like that. That is the person Jesus calls blessed, approved of, commended, good on her. Jesus says over her, blessed, blessed, Because you mourn like that. If that's one person in that situation, imagine another same situation on his own in his flat. He too is overwhelmed by grief at the life he's lost because of what he's done. But his sorrow stops at that point. He is mourning over what he's done, but he's primarily mourning most of all over what it it has done to him. That is what he is sorry about. He is full of sorrow, but in the end, it is a sorrow over the consequences in his life now. It is not really a sorrow that leads to repentance before the Lord. It's not primarily a, Lord, I have sinned against you. And until he gets to that point, there is no blessed to you, as Jesus says it here for him. Now remember that those who mourn over their sin, verse 4, that is, that is all Christians. And you can know that that is you as a Christian. You can know verse 4 is you. You don't need to be uncertain whether you are sort of truly mourning over sin or just kind of feeling sorry for yourself. Here is how you can know. When a Christian is hit hard by some sin that they have committed, what is it that they really most of all want to do? They want to grieve over it before God, as something committed before God. Not just something that might have messed things up for them. What most fills them with horror 
is not in the end how the sin looks in their eyes or in the eyes of the world. It's how it looks before God. And that's the focus of their prayers. They might read Psalm 51, written by King David, after he had committed adultery. And he says to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned. And if you read that or hear that, and in your own thing, that, yeah, that is my prayer. Then you are doing what verse 4 describes. And if you're a Christian, you do pray like that. You must have prayed like that. Otherwise, you could never have become a Christian at all. Because we know, don't we? No, no one ever became a Christian by just feeling really, really, really sorry for having messed stuff up. You know that. You became a Christian when, yes, you had really, really, really messed stuff up, but you became a Christian when you reached the point of saying, it is God, my creator, that I have most offended. And you were grieved enough for that to turn you to him. So, so be reassured, because deep down, mourning over sin describes every Christian. And of them, says, them, Jesus says, commended, blessed. And he promises comfort here, doesn't he? The second half of verse 4. Those who mourn will be comforted. That comfort is now, and it's also not yet. Here's the now of that comfort, and it's forgiveness. It is simply knowing we are forgiven. It's also not yet, because the not yet is, one day every tear will be wiped away, as the end of Revelation says, including every tear that we weep over our own sin. That is not yet, but one day it will be. And that blessing of comfort, says Jesus, it just is yours, and you can know it is yours, because you could not have become a Christian in the first place if you had not mourned over your sins before God. Now, I mean, someone may hear this and, and get a sense that sometimes I kind of fall away from this. I guess we all do to some extent. And perhaps one little signal of that would be the grief over the consequences of our sin can sometimes loom a little bit larger than our grief over that it's God we've sinned before. And whenever we realise that, that is a moment, isn't it? To, to spot the weed, as it were, that's growing in the spiritual garden. And to go, I'm not going to let that get any bigger. I'm going to rip it out now when it's small. Because ripping it out when it's really big, that's harder. So we, we turn back to mourn over what we should most mourn over. Blessed are those who mourn, says Jesus, for they will be comforted. And then verse 5. That second beatitude in this talk. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well now, what is meekness? We got to, what is meekness? We've got to understand this. Again, like with these beatitudes, I think it's best seen in action. And the person who lived this, lives this out, out best, I'm hoping you're spotting a running theme here, the person who lived this out best is Jesus himself. He doesn't just talk it, he walks it. 
Remember what Jesus says literally from the cross. I mean, literally from the cross. They have hammered hands, uh, nails through his hands and feet. And he is hanging there. And what does he literally say about the people who have done that to him? Father, forgive them. How does it go on? They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is the meekness he's talking about. Not demanding vengeance. Even when, frankly, that would be fair. Putting himself below others. The Apostle Peter describes it in in his first letter. Peter says of Jesus, When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, God, who judges justly. That is meekness. Not an asserting of my rights. Not a lashing out. And Peter, in that line, he shows us how Jesus could manage to be meek like that. He knew that God would judge justly the people who were crucifying him. So he could leave that to God. In this beatitude, again, remember the previous one, blessed are those who mourn? This is basically quoting Isaiah. This one, blessed are the meek, he's literally quoting Psalm 37. Psalm 37. That psalm says, the meek will inherit the land. That's that's verse 5 in Matthew, isn't it? And just listen to how, I'm going to read a couple of verses. Just listen to how Psalm 37 describes the meek. They're the ones who don't need to get their own way the whole time. Because they know that on the last day, God will right every wrong. Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. You don't need to grab. God's going to do it. So if you want a one-line definition of meekness, um, in the way Jesus means it here, this is the best line I found in the books I read on this. Listen to this. Meekness is a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of your own. Meekness. A controlled desire. You want something and you're controlling yourself to keep wanting it. And what you want is to see the interests of other people advance ahead of your own interests. It's others above you. And not just saying it, but doing it. Now, when you put it that way, you can see meekness takes strength. It takes strength to control yourself. It takes strength to say to yourself, I'm just not going to drag the spotlight back on me when to my deep annoyance someone is getting the credit for something I did. That takes self-control. 
There's a man I knew who'd um, not long previously become a Christian in, as, as a grown man. And he was a real petrol head. He loved cars. Very proud of his car. But uh, his house didn't have a driveway, so he had to park on the road. Risky, I think, if you really love your car. And, and one day, yeah, sure enough, he's sitting in his front room. And he, the way he tells the story, this car came barreling down the road. He heard a bang, looked outside, saw his wing mirror of his precious car hanging off, smashed to pieces, and the car still barreling down the road. And he said, before I knew what I was doing, I jumped up and I was legging it out of the house going, I'll get that guy's number. And he said, it's, I didn't really know what was happening, but I just found myself stopping and going, who cares? It's a car. I live for bigger stuff now. That would be a, a growth of meekness in him, I think. I, I don't need to assert my rights. Others can st- take stuff from me without penalty. That's all right. Why? Well, because Jesus says, if my heart is like that, God will give me everything. The meek will inherit the earth. This is incredibly topsy-turvy, isn't it? This is not the way it should work. There's a sense in which it makes no sense. The people who, on the last day, when Christ returns, will be left owning everything, are the people who never grabbed for anything. Now, inheriting the earth, what is that? Well, ultimately, it's a future thing when Christ returns. Last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, says that when Christ returns, Christians will reign forever and ever because they belong to him who is the king who reigns forever and ever. But in a way, a bit like the comfort in verse 4, in a bit like this blessing, as well as being not yet, it is also now. As a Christian, I wonder if you resonate with these words. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul describes himself like this. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. That is what we tell ourselves, isn't it? When when someone else gets ahead of us unjustly. When someone takes something from us unjustly, and we cannot get it back. That is how we fight off the desire to elbow ourselves back into all that we think is rightfully ours. The spotlight on us, just as it should rightfully be. What we tell ourselves is, why why would I need that? They they can take it. because, Because if I have Christ, which I do, I have everything in him. That is the message to ourselves day after day. That That is what we preach to ourselves if we are to stay in and to grow in what Jesus talks about when he says here, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Like last night, let me just leave a moment. There may be different um, things that the Spirit is saying to you in this. There may be particular personal things that you just want to bring before the Lord in prayer now in light of what Jesus says here. So... Time to pray for yourself with the quiet, then I'll pray for us.
Lord Jesus, keep us in these things we pray. Rightly mourning over our sin and knowing your comfort. Rightly meek, knowing, convinced that in you we have and will have everything. Amen. We're going to sing uh, to close um, this time before uh, Daniel comes and uh, closes us formally and we hear um, some other things that are going on. Uh, With this song that speaks of Christ and his power at work in us who believe. Let's stand and sing What Gift of Grace. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine, I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need His power is displayed. To this I hold my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead oh the night has been won and i shall overcome yet not i but through christ in me I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, I can see. I am free, yet not I, but 